Um, so I get to do part two of the misquoted series, and uh, and it's been great to just kind of be wrestling with with uh, Matthew chapter seven. I want to let you know I didn't I did not get my slides in this week, so that's completely on me. I apologize. So I'm just going to prep you up front that in order to follow along, you're going to want to have two passages uh, in your scriptures that you're kind of prepared to go to. So the first one would be in Matthew chapter seven, uh, taking a look at Matthew chapter seven one to five, and then also in Galatians chapter 6 verses 1 to 3. So those will be the two passages that we kind of, we spend most of our time in here this morning. So um, last night I was uh, getting on a plane in Kelowna to come here and uh, for like one of the first times I was really excited that my plane was a little bit late because I was watching my son play basketball online. So he was in Vancouver yesterday. He's, he's made a team there that, that he's playing with on the weekends, and he'll be traveling to Vegas in a couple of weeks to play with them down there. And, uh, and you know, it was such a gift for him, because for the last year and a half, he hasn't been able to play, you know, any real basketball. And that's just something he really enjoys. It's something that gives him life. It's a great way for him to be involved with his friends. We love it because it's about his character development, and, and there's just so many things that, that have been really good about that for him. So it's really fun for him to be back there. And then, of course, his parents, you know, like, we've been dying to watch some basketball. Do you know what I mean? Like, I mean, we, for me, I'm just like, I don't really care if you don't like it, I like it. You're playing. Like, that's kind of where we're at in these moments. Now, um, what's interesting, of course, is we haven't been allowed into gyms yet. So, of course, we have to watch it online, which is what I was doing last night. And I think there's a part of that experience that I'm having to engage being online, not in person, that my wife actually thinks is really good. In fact, I think there's a part of my wife that's kind of hoping maybe I'm not allowed in the gym for a little bit longer yet. So, you know, when I, uh, when I used to, you know, I'd watch or, or coach Cole, I, I've got to be honest, I, I get pretty involved. Like, I would say borderline enmeshed. Like, it, probably emotional, emotionally enmeshed in the experience that's taking place. I just kind of own that already. Like, I'm just like clear with my son. There's a good chance, bud, that you're actually, you know, I'm living out many of my dreams through you, so I just want you to own that burden. That's kind of that's kind of where we're at in the journey here as we're trying to be honest about the whole thing. But part of the problem that would happen, of course, is when I was coaching uh, Cole and he was playing, I was always shocked at how biased the refs were against my son and his team, like almost every game and really consistently. And so, of course, I, you know, my justice button would click in and I would try to help them understand that they weren't actually seeing the game correctly. And then shockingly, they would consistently judge me as out of line. Like I just, I like just, you know, you know, just consistently talk to me. I remember when I got my first technical and I, I really, Really, I just wanted to stand up and say, don't judge me. Like, you don't have a right to do that. You know what I mean? You can't tell me how to live my life. And so, you know, that was a problem for me. But what was even more significant, and this is another reason why I think I have this problematic relationship with refs, is that when they would begin to judge me in that way, so would my wife. Like, now, it, now it's becoming really personal. In fact, I remember one time when I'm coaching, and I had my phone in my back pocket, and it's just buzzing and buzzing and buzzing. And, and finally, I go to sit down, you know, and I kind of take it out with frustration and set it aside. And as I do, I notice on my screen there's a message from my wife who's sitting across the gym in the stands. And she's like, 
people are watching you, you know? <laughs> and I knew there was like more to that thought than what was there. And all I could think of was like, how long could I avoid her after this game? You know, <laughs> like, but unfortunately we were driving together home. So that was going to be difficult, you know? And so, and so then, you know, and, and of course the, the conversation engages and I feel embarrassed and I'm a pastor, but then I read my scriptures and then I kind of get excited because I turn to my wife in these really important moments as she's trying to tell me how I should or shouldn't live my life. And I just say to her, babe, the Bible says, don't judge me. <laughs> and I got to tell you, that goes over so well in our home. <laughs> like, so, <laughs> you know, we live in, uh, we live in a society that's, that's really kind of hardwired into this conversation, right? Like, um, y- you know, if you, if you watch kind of any show today, you watch almost any celebration of most individuals. The kind of phrases that you're going to hear over and over again are phrases like, hey, you should be true to yourself. Do whatever feels is right. Follow your own truth. Be who you want to be. It's your life. You can do with it whatever you want. Like this is the ethos of the age, isn't it? I mean, this, this whole idea within our cultural context that our lives are our own. We can do with it whatever we want. So then when we read like Matthew chapter seven, verse one, we're like, oh yeah. And it's also biblical. Awesome. You know what I mean? And so then we just start lobbing this thing out there, like in all sorts of different situations. But of course, you know, for those of us who are, who wrestled with the scriptures and for those of us who are followers of Christ in particular, we actually, we actually feel a sense of dissonance in the conversation, don't we? Like we know when, when we're tempted to just toss out this idea of, hey, don't judge me, it's my life, we actually know it's not true, right? Because we know, like, scripturally and, you know, within reality that our lives are actually not our own. Like, first of all, our lives belong to God, correct? We know that, right? Like, this is the very foundation of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, when he's talking about what it means to be a follower of Jesus, basic Christianity 101, foundation. This is pay to play right here. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith. And by the way, that word faith is this idea of entrusting to completely giving over to, surrendering, hands off, not mine, yours, okay? I live by faith in the Son of God who loved himself and gave himself for me. It's not my life. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians and he says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. <laughs> it's just, like this, this is foundational to what it means for us to be a follower of Christ is that that we're not our own, we belong to God. But not only do we belong to God, and this is where it starts to rub a little bit, the Bible actually says we belong to each other as well. That our lives are not our own just vertically. As followers of Christ, our lives are not our own horizontally. Now, we know this is basic humanity. If we're really honest, we know that our lives aren't actually our own, that what we do actually affects other people. And that this whole philosophy that I can do whatever I want only works when people are doing what I want them to do. But as soon as someone else's whatever I want 
is in tension with my whatever I want, we understand all of a sudden it's not functioning anymore. There has to be some kind of baseline of reality in terms of how we should function together that is for the flourishing of all people. And the reality is when we just kind of do whatever we think, we're often off that baseline. We, we, we belong to each other. Paul says in Romans chapter 12, he says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Ooh, that's a hit. Don't think of yourself more highly than you should. Quit placing yourself up at the front all the time. It's almost as if he's looking at us going, hey, it's not about you. And that's just, that's just such an offensive way to engage, you know? He says, for by grace given to me, I say to everyone about you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many are one body in Christ and individually, listen to this, members of one another. He says, hey, you actually belong to each other. Now, in this context, what he's speaking about, you know, it's kind of interesting context, right? He says that we should think with sober judgment and according to the measure of faith that God has given us. Like, what does that mean? Here's what I think it means. First of all, when you hear it, it sounds like there's different measures of faith that God gives us at different seasons of life. And this is one of those kind of mysteries where we have a responsibility to take steps to grow our faith, but also God is the perfecter of our faith. He's growing our faith as well. And then uniquely, there seems to be these seasons where we have like lesser faith and greater faith and somehow God's in that space as well. And you kind of go, what does that mean? Here's what I think it means. The context in Romans 12 is he's talking about how we should function as the body of Christ and belonging to each other. And what I think he's saying is that God actually has this type of design in some way where sometimes some of us have less faith than the other. So those with more faith can come alongside and carry those with less faith. And in other seasons, when our faith is stronger, we'll carry those whose faith is weaker. And there's this beautiful symbiotic relationship, interdependent relationship that we're called to live out as followers of Christ. And when we are clear about the reality that it's for our good, it feels good, it's coming alongside, we're excited about that. But when it feels like someone is speaking to our life in a way that doesn't make us feel good in that moment all of a sudden we're not so excited about that symbiotic in, you know, engaging relationship anymore, right? And all of a sudden we're like, hey, don't judge me. You don't have a right to judge me, man. And of course we can find the passage that seems to point to it. So, you know, James chapter one, chapter seven, sorry, one to five, Jesus says this. He says, judge not that you be not judged. It's clear. He says it. And then he goes on in verse two. Let's quickly read through it. He says, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Can you imagine? <laughs> If Jesus walked into us here today in this cultural context and started calling us hypocrite, how offended we would be by that. <laughs> like, are you, what gives you the right to speak? Oh, I belong to you. And what about when our brothers and sisters come to us and they go, hey, there's something I need to talk to you about. And we go, what gives you the right? 
Oh, I belong to you. Oh, that there's this weird kingdom way that God's called us to. That, that's actually for our good. And that's actually, I think, what the issue is here. Here's what I think this passage is talking about. I think that when this passage is talking about don't judge, it's talking about a type of judging that we shouldn't do. He's not saying that we shouldn't be like critical thinkers. He's not saying that we shouldn't, you know, evaluate morally what's taking place. We should make moral evaluations. He's not saying we shouldn't be morally discerning. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that we shouldn't challenge each other, engage in hard conversations. He's not saying that. So, so what is he saying then when he, when he comes to us and he says, judge not that you be not judged, what is he saying? I think he's talking about a way we should not go about it. And by the way, one of the reasons why I say that in the passage, because he says in verse five, he says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So we're supposed to engage in each other to help create clear vision or bring a way of flourishing to one another. And I think that's actually at the core of what Jesus is trying to say here. I think there's two things, you know, here that we understand that we shouldn't do when it comes to like journeying with each other as people who belong to each other. And I think the first thing he's saying is he's saying, hey, listen, when you judge, be discerning, but don't be condemning. Don't condemn. I think what, what he's saying here is he's saying, hey, you can be discerning, absolutely, but you're not God. Don't condemn. And the reason why I think that is because he says, hey, you don't see clearly all the time. There's stuff in your eye as well. The reason why we can't take the position of the final arbiter of truth is because we're fallible. God isn't. Given, he, he's given us his word. He sees clearly, but we're fallible, which means we should just understand that we might not even see what he's given us as clearly as we should. So there should be some humility there when we engage others. We don't get to be the ones with the final word, the condemning word. We are not the ultimate judge. Only God is. And we see that in the scriptures. In James 4, 11 to 12, James says, you know, he says, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Only one lawgiver ultimately is the judge. You're not ultimate. You don't have a position to condemn. You discern, you engage, you challenge, speak truth. But you're not the ultimate judge here. You, 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 don't, you, don't get, you don't condemn. He says in Romans 14, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. So he says, don't, be, don't condemn. That's, that's not what you're called to do. And then the second part I think he says is don't be arrogant. So he goes on and he says, or, or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. And I think he's challenging us to say, hey, you're not better than anyone else. 
When you take the position of judging the way that you're judging, you're positioning yourself as feeling like you're superior to the others. That somehow you're better than. And that is never the type of position that we should take. Because apart from God's grace, we're all out. None of us measure up. And we continue to do battle as followers of Christ. So that should remove all arrogance. In fact, I think one of the, one of the great challenges is, man, if you find yourself in a position where you're habitually confronting people, habitually confronting people, you should maybe take some time to step back and go, why does this seem to be the consistent way that I look to interact with others? Is there something in me where I feel like I need to prove myself or show myself better than? And if that's the case, then, then I think the position we need to go to is confession and repentance. Because that automatically disqualifies us from the role that Christ would have us with others within the body of Christ. Why? Because it's not humble, but more importantly, it's not loving. It's not loving. And this is what absolutely has to be in place if we are going to be the type of people who engage others with the truth, if we are going to be a community who is committed to practicing moral discernment, if we are going to be the type of community that is, that is committed to moving forward in God's way towards the Father, if this is who we're going to be, then the primary motivating reality that should move us to engage each other as brothers and sisters who belong to each other has to be humility and it has to be love. We have to be the people that are committed to speaking truth because we long to bring life to others. It's not so much about a confrontation, it's actually about an invitation. That we're the kind of community that wants to invite each other into a better way. And we do it knowing that we're going to need others to invite us into that better way as well. You know, it's really interesting, right? If you remember John chapter 8, where there's a woman caught in adultery... And the, and the Pharisees, they come and they accuse her before Jesus and the others of having committed adultery. It's really fascinating to me that Jesus never actually confronts their accusation. He never tells them that it's not true. She didn't commit adultery. Do you know what he confronts? He confronts their hypocrisy. He says, well, you guys, you know, throw the first stone if you've never, Right? But, but here's what's really interesting at the end. And this is, I think, what we always miss. He shuts up those voices. He sends them away. He turns to her and he says, Has no one, is no one here to condemn you? She goes, no one, Lord. And he says, neither do I condemn you. And then he says this, go and sin no, for, go and sin no more. In our cultural context, when Jesus comes to us and says, go, sin no more, we define that as condemnation. Right? But apparently Jesus didn't. Why? Why? Jesus actually spoke the same truth to that woman that the Pharisees did. He actually did. He acknowledged that she'd been sinning. He called it out. So what was the difference? They spoke truth to bring death. He spoke truth to invite her to life. And that's who we're supposed to be. We're to be this community that is so radically committed to each other that we will in love go and speak truth to one another. Why? To bring us to life. But the only way that we can do that if we are a community defined by humility and love. 
Okay, so then what does that actually look like? How does that work itself out practically when it comes to this type of journey? Galatians chapter six, I think is the best passage. Real quick, let's just end with here. Here's what Paul says in Galatians chapter six when he's speaking about being the type of people that are committed to one another so much that we're going to, we're going to confront sin, sin and sinful activity and sinful attitudes in each other or challenge sinful activity. We'll be morally discerning with and for each other so, because we love each other so much. That's why we're going to do it. You know, it's, you know, when I talk to people about, hey, have you, you know, you, they see something in their friend, they're like, man, my friend's doing this and this. Have you talked to them about it? Ah, no, I don't, I don't really think I should. And I'm, I'm kind of like, you know, why is that? Well, I really love them. And then the question that kind of goes through my head is, it, okay, is it that you love your friend or is it just that you love friendship? Like, what is it you actually, what, what do we love? Because we're, we're afraid of losing the friendship, and I understand that. But if we really love our friend, we're going to be willing to take a risk on the friendship for the sake of something greater for our friend. You know what I mean? And we have to be careful that that's not an excuse to be abusive. But if we understand Galatians chapter 6, then I think we have a real good chance to not only go with an attitude that's for others, not against them, but actually to be experienced as being for each other and not just against each other. So let's see what it has to say. Galatians chapter 6. It says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, so it's clear, moral discernment has been made. This is functioning in a way that doesn't line up with God's way. Okay, so it's, 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 not, it's not right. It's not good. Okay, that's clear. We've discerned that. He says, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Okay, so just a, real quick, first word that stands out to me is that word spiritual. You who are spiritual should go and engage them, okay? What does that mean? You know, I think sometimes when we hear this idea of someone's really spiritual, we think of them as holier than thou. You know, it's like, I don't know if I ever want to be called that person because they always feel like they think they're, you know, kind of better than everyone else. And they're always the kind of people that seem to be trying to control other people. Okay, being spiritual, according to Galatians, is not about trying to control others. It's about trying to place ourselves under the control of Christ. If I am a spiritual person, I think what Paul's probably referencing is the chapter before in Galatians chapter 5, when he's talking about walking by the Spirit, being led by the Spirit. He says, these are spiritual people. And then he's like, this is what those type of people, they will look like. He says, this is the fruit of the Spirit in those people. They will be loving, joyful, peaceful, right? It says love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. He says people who are under the control of Jesus Christ, who are being led by the Spirit, who are spiritual, are people who are loving and peaceful and kind and gentle and self-controlled. And I'm thinking to myself, I would love those kind of people to confront me. Like all day long, isn't it so weird how so many of the people who are all into confrontation rarely seem like that? They seem angry and they seem attacking and very like even defensive. And, and I think, you know, I think the first thing here is he says is, be, you know, if we're, if we're going to engage someone before we go to them, first we have to go to Jesus ourselves. And before we engage them, we have to ask Jesus to engage us. And go, Lord, is there anything in my disposition towards this situation that doesn't line up with your fruits of the Spirit? And until those line up, I don't know if I can go. So do your work, Lord, right? So first he says that that we need to be spiritual. He says, you who are spiritual should restore him 
in a spirit of gentleness. And I think that phrase is so important, restore in a spirit of gentleness. There's two things I think that means. Number one, before we go to someone else, we need to be for them, not against them. I mean, when do we most want to confront somebody? We most want to confront them in the moment when they've hurt us or they've hurt someone we love. Man, I want to go and confront them. And if I'm really honest, because I've been there like a whole bunch, my desire is not to restore them in that moment. My desire is to hurt them back. That's actually what it is, if I'm really honest. In that moment, that's what it is. But the kingdom way, the way that Jesus calls us to is that anytime we move to confront someone else, the whole vision is restoration. It's about flourishing. It's about bringing them into a way that is good for them and good for others. Understanding that God's way isn't just right, it's good, and that's what he would have for all of us. So that has to be the mission. You know, in our organizations, when we think about, you know, engaging, you know, others who aren't, who aren't functioning in a flourishing way, in a good way, in the way that God's called us to, we, in our organizations, we always think what's going to be the journey of restoration. We don't go to confrontation until we got restoration figured out. And that shouldn't just be in our organizations. That should be in our personal hearts. That's where we go. So, you know, before we write the email, before we send the message, you know, before we have the conversation, are we doing it because we love them, because we're for them, and because we want to see restoration take place? And not only why, but how. He says that we should do it in gentleness. Why gentleness? Because when we are gentle, people can actually experience us as for them. When we're gentle, we don't shame. We don't attack. We, we allow others to maintain dignity and, and honor. And we have the best opportunity for someone to understand, to actually experience that we are for them, not against them. And so there's this way of being that we're being called into. First, it's, we're spiritual. We, we become controlled by Jesus instead of trying to control others. Second, we're for people. We're not against them. We look to restore, and we do it in a, in a position of gentleness. And that's, gonna, that's hard work to position ourselves in that space. Third, we do it with, with humility. We do it, we engage people not because we think we're better than them, but because we want all of us to be better. Listen to what Paul says. He says, he says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Even in the midst of the conversation, you too could be tempted to think of yourself as better than the other, which we're not. Apart from God's grace, we're all the, we're all the marginalized ones. We're all the ones on the outside. We're all the ones heading in the wrong direction, Right? So there has to be this, this deep sense of humility where, where we're not measuring ourselves against others. How silly is that? That we would confront from this position of thinking, well, look at me, moral high ground, I'm better than you. When all honesty, other people are not the measure of morality. God is. And none of us measure up, right? We just don't. So when we engage in this kind of way, it's not coming from moral high ground. It's coming from a place of humility, of love, of service. We don't engage others so that we can feel better about our own personal morality. That's not why we do it. 
We do it so that we can help others be better because it's an act of love. It's an act of, it's an act of service. So, so we, we, we first, we become spiritual. Second, we're for them, not against them. We restore, we're gentle. Third, we're humble. And then finally, we, we persevere. Listen to what he says. he says. He says, keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That, that, that word bear, that idea of bearing one another's burdens is this idea of journeying with, of carrying the burden of restoration with them, of continuing to move along. And I mean, journeying with people towards restoration, man, that so, can be so inconvenient. It takes up time. It takes up emotional energy, creates confusion. It can be really hard. And, but, but this is what... This is what the Bible says. It says that we need to bear one another's burdens, stay in it, carry on, persevere. I don't know for sure, but when I read that, here's what I've been thinking lately. I'm thinking that if my confrontation is simply going to be an email or just going to be a quick conversation or maybe it's going to be a post on Facebook, Something that's just kind of in the moment, it's quick, move on. I suspect according to this that I probably shouldn't drop it. If I'm not willing to stay in it and journey alongside, I just, I don't know if I get to have that moment. Do you know what I mean? Because it's so much more than a moment. It's about restoration, redemption, recreation. This is what Jesus is about. This is his way, and this is what he calls us to. This is the way we are called to be. So I think there's so much more here, you know? When Jesus says, hey, don't judge lest you'll be judged, he's not, he's not talking about not having you know, moral discernment. He's not talking about not engaging in difficult conversations. He's not saying that we shouldn't speak the truth to one another. He's talking about how we do it. He's saying, don't, don't condemn. Don't be the final arbiter. You're not God. You're fallible. Just acknowledge that in the way that you go. That changes how you do it and who you are. Don't be arrogant. You're not better than. Be humble. We're at the same level. We're going to need each other in the journey. In the same way that you're called to engage others in these, others will be called to engage you. And that's how it should be. And if we'll change our disposition, where of course we'll be clear, we'll be convicted, we'll be engaged, but if we do it with love and we do it with humility, then we actually have the opportunity for restoration. We actually have the opportunity for wholeness. We actually present space for us to experience flourishing and grace, even in the midst of the difficult conversations, even over time and the difficult journeying there can be God's powerful work if we will embrace this kingdom way of being with one another. It's not simple, it's complex, but it's rich, it's rich. And it can be life-changing, you know? So um, when I was thinking about this, I was thinking about kind of a defining moment I had in college. Um, I'd kind of had this season where I was struggling a little bit in, you know, in experiencing intimacy with Jesus. We can all get that. And there can be lots of reasons why we kind of have these dark seasons of the soul, many. But one of the things that I do when I'm in it is I'll just, I'll go, Lord, if there's something in me that's not of you, if there's something that's not lining up with your way, 
could you reveal that to me? It's so fascinating. When I pray for like new cars, houses, you know, planes, it just seems to take a long time for Jesus to answer those things. <laughs> when I pray like, is there sin in my life? Bam! It's like, oh, we'll deal with that right now, you know? So, so I, 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 I remember I pray and, and it's like a, a day or so later, I'm in my room. And one of my hallmates, Brad, comes in and we're yakking about some stuff. And then all of a sudden he turns to me and goes, hey, Sid, can I talk to you about something? And that's always kind of like a, uh-oh. You know, like when we're talking about something, it's rarely the something that any of us want to really talk about. And he goes, um, I just remember he looks at me and goes, hey, there's a couple of things that I'm seeing in your life right now and, um, and they're not good. And he just said, Sid, I feel like every time you're with us, we're together as friends, I feel like you're constantly trying to compete the way you talk, things you say, it's like you're always trying to be better than. And, and the other thing I feel like is you're always just angling for affirmation. Just, and it just, it sucks the life out of the community. And, and I, I, he's just like, I love you, and, but this is just something I'm really seeing in your life. And I remember God was gracious because very rarely do I respond really well in that moment. I mean, ask my wife. It takes at least a day, you know, <laughs> and then maybe even a week. And, and sometimes maybe I need to go home and get some things. Anyways, we'll do Listen, I'm not going to just download that right now. But, you know, like it doesn't come easy, but God was gracious. And I remember just in the moment, you know, just, just feeling the spirit at work and the conviction was real and I, I, I confessed things and, and we were able to reconcile and, and pray together and there was restoration going on in my life. And you know what is interesting to me is Brad took that moment. What I don't think he realized is that moment would make a very significant difference for the rest of my life, but not just my life, but my wife's life and my kid's life as well. Because it can be a tough home if you're growing up and your dad's constantly trying to like compete and compare to others, belittle those around them so they can feel better about themselves, that's a tough home to be in. And it's not that that doesn't happen in our home at times because I still wrestle, but because of Brad and God's grace through Brad, I'm more aware of it now and I've developed better ways to do battle for that sin in my life. And God's been gracious, not just to me, but to my family and my friends. And he's been so gracious. And when the body of Christ functions the way that God calls us to in this kind of space, in this kind of way, it brings flourishing. It brings flourishing. And that's what Jesus would have for us. And I just pray that would be the kind of community that we would be. Let me pray. Father, I love you. You're so good. And I thank you for how good you are. And Lord, um, you, you, you know, we don't, we don't belong to ourselves. We're not just autonomous. We're not just individuals. You've designed us for others. You've designed us for you. You've designed us for other people. This is your created way, and we're thankful for that. It's hard to know how to live out well as your body, as people who belong to each other. That's not easy for us to know how, but, but Lord, if your spirit would work and your spirit would allow your word to resonate in our minds and the things that are of our you would just stick with us. The things that are not would be blown away quickly. Lord, we could, your spirit could continue to move us, restore us, renew us. And we ask for that. And we pray that we would be the kind of body that would just be open to your work. We would act in love and humility and before, not against one another. We thank you, Jesus. You're so good in your name. Amen.